Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. <laughs> Welcome back to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Ellen Halliday, Deputy Editor at Prospect, and today I'm joined by Khaled Mansour, who is a writer on humanitarian aid, human rights and peacekeeping. He has spent 13 years working with the United Nations, including with UNICEF, peacekeeping missions and the World Food Programme. And in the latest issue of Prospect, which is out from the 1st of November, Khaled's written about the impact of the violence in Israel and Gaza on Palestinians and on the Middle East more generally. Khaled, it's good to see you. Where are you joining us from? I'm joining you from Amman, Jordan, where I live. Thank you so much for for taking the time to speak. This is clearly a fast-moving situation, so it's probably worth saying for our listeners that we're speaking on the 31st of October. So by the time this this comes out, you know, the 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 broad facts will be the same, but some details may have developed. But let's start with with the current moment. You're an expert in humanitarian aid and a keen observer of Middle Eastern politics. And we know that what we've been seeing in Israel and Gaza since the Hamas attacks on the 7th of October have been unprecedented. But how would you characterize the situation today in Gaza? I think unprecedented maybe sums it up. I covered and worked in places like Kabul after 9-11. I did work in Baghdad after the U.S. invasion in 2003, I worked on Darfur, and this for me is unprecedented because it's just happening, unfolding under our watch. It's happening on our phone screens, and it's happening on TV screens in an unprecedented manner, as a matter of fact. And it's getting dire day after day. I was watching the Security Council debates yesterday in disbelief because... As I was watching, I was getting communications uh, after a blackout on communications in Gaza for almost a day. I was getting communications from journalists and friends and people I know in Gaza about how dire the situation is, how they are finally getting hungry, how there is no fuel. So many of them are resorting to drinking dirty water, which means that the threat of waterborne diseases is increasing. How... Did Gaza in the past few days receive less than 100 trucks in almost a week for a totally blockaded, small, narrow strip of land that used to get 500 trucks a day? Okay, so it's, it's really what's happening is a form of, as far as I'm concerned, and based on international law, this is a form of collective punishment and forced displacement because... 
the Israeli army told the people in North Gaza to move south. And then they bombed targets in the south. And then the language, which I find very problematic and contravening for the international law about Hamas is using people as human shields. I mean, this is one of the most densely populated areas in the whole world, about 141 square miles with 2.3 million people. I mean, where can people go? Mm, yeah, I mean, the stories that have been coming out have been have been truly horrifying. The conditions in hospitals and people struggling to receive medication, more than 8,000 people now reported to have been killed in Gaza. Um, I mean, I'd love to come back to that point that you made about the collective punishments. And in your piece, you actually talk about one of the consequences of this period being, you know, a, a change in kind of international rules of, of war and, and what is deemed acceptable and what is, is not. We'll kind of come back to different countries in a minute, but can you tell me a bit more about what you meant when you said that? I meant that when in the 90s we started talking, instead of talking about the conduct of war, something called the Geneva Conventions that we all as countries, as humans, have struggled a lot about 100 years ago to put into place, to say, okay, states can go to war. That's what they do. Humans fight. But there should be a norm regulating the conduct of war. You cannot kill civilians. You cannot target the uh, electric power stations. You cannot hit a hospital. You cannot kill children. Da, 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 da. So that was codified in the Geneva Conventions that ruled the conduct of war. Since the late 90s and because of what became labeled as the war against terror, states started to take license because armed militant organizations or, if you like the new nomenclature, the Terrorist organizations, they are usually armed militias. They are not in camps. They are not regular army. Most likely they are within the community. And that started as a phenomenon from the Vietnam War. So if those guys are within communities, then we started to have the new term collateral damage. We wanted to kill the Taliban. Sorry, 30 students were killed in school. We wanted to hit a Qaeda base. Then you hit a Médecins Sans Frontières. Uh, hospital in, in, in North Afghanistan. I'm talking about issues that actually really happened. Now, collateral damage, of course, is apt to happen. And that's why the international law that had norms that spoke about distinction, you have to do your utmost best to make a distinction between fighters and non-fighters to proportionality, that if somebody hits you with a bullet, you don't hit them with a 500-pound uh, bomb and military advantage. There is no reason to hit a hospital saying maybe there are two fighters hiding behind it while a thousand people are being treated there. So these principles are eroding. And this is my main concern because when you attack Gaza over three weeks, and let's, let's be very clear, what Hamas did on October 7 as an armed group or terrorist group amounts to a war crime. They killed civilians, they killed Israeli soldiers, but they killed civilians. That's a war crime and should be brought to the fullest extent of the just, of justice or law. The problem with the erosion of the, the norms ruling the conduct for is that everything is permissible. So over three weeks, you kill 8,000 people 
and their names, ID, and 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 like ID numbers and addresses are, are already published. So you kill eight thousand people and say, "Sorry, these are human shields, or they are collateral damage, or Hamas was hiding behind them." Uh, and I don't know how many Hamas fighters were killed. Mm-hmm. I mean, we only have the civilians' numbers. So is this worth it? Mm-hmm. More than three thousand children. Is this worth it? Is this compliant with the principles of distinction? proportionality, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 it has become a bit cynical because you, you start hearing academics, especially from the West, and I'm very, I'm very actually disturbed to say that because for a long time as a human rights activist, I rejected distinctions or differentiations between the West and the rest, we and them. But I started hearing respected academics from the West talking, ah, but wars are brutal. Uh, in Dresden, that's 1944. That's 70 years ago. We had to kill 25,000 people. Oh, we had to do Hiroshima. No, we didn't have to. It happened. And then we started to, to have better implementation of the Geneva Convention. We started to have an international criminal court. We started to have an international declaration of human rights. Don't throw that out of the window. Mm-hmm. And this is my main concern because then all of us will pay a price for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the in the piece, you if we talk if we move on to the the geopolitics of the region, you explain that um, sense of kind of inequality um, in in how this violence will be experienced, Palestinians bearing the brunt, but also in a highly unequal region, the poorer countries, poorer nations experiencing you know the fallout from this differently to those which are, are wealthier. I mean that sense of what's um, permissible is perhaps felt differently by different countries, um, Arab countries and, you know, the other nations of of the Middle East. You talk about, for example, maybe we can start with looking at Egypt because, you know, the today discussion about more aid potentially getting in, as you say, it's maybe a hundred trucks far less than went in before. But that's something that's becoming a point of pressure for Egypt, isn't it, in how they might respond to to the violence. Of course, Ellen. I mean this is um this is one of the, this is the most unequal region in the world in terms of people's access to wealth, income, and actually political power as well. And that applies from Israel to United Arab Emirates to Egypt. Uh, even access to power in Israel, which is which is touted as the main democracy or the only democracy in the Middle East, does not apply to the 5 million Palestinians who live in the occupied territories under Israeli control. Egypt is in a tough position. Egypt, which is an authoritarian state ruled by a general come come president, has had working and uh, holding a peace agreement with Israel for 45 years. But Egypt does not want what Israeli officials have made clear implicitly or explicitly to receive hundreds of thousands of Palestinians and keep them in quote-unquote refugee camps in Sinai. Let's battle back. 2.3 million people, more or less, in Gaza. Of them, 1.7 million are actually refugees. Those are guys, these are the descendants of the 750,000 Palestinians that were forced to leave their homes from Palestinian villages and towns under mandated Palestine in 1948 under the pressure either of armed Zionist militias or fearing for their lives. So their descendants now, 1.7 million people are in Gaza and they're asked by the Israelis, move south and the south is being hit. Then they are at the border crossing with Egypt. 
Again, Gaza was under total blockade. There is no port, no airport. Israel seals all entry points except for one which is sealed by Egypt because there is a security collaboration between, between the two countries. For Egypt, this is very problematic. One, because it knows if it accepted a couple hundred thousand or three hundred thousand, which from a humanitarian point of view, it's maybe a good thing to do. I mean, those people are getting hungry. They don't have enough medical care. Bring them over, let them be treated, and then they will go back. Haha. -ha. They haven't gone back, their fathers haven't gone back, their grandmothers haven't gone back, they might not go back. And why is that a problem? I mean, an Israeli commentator wants to say that. Why is that a problem? Sinai is empty. Indeed, there's a couple hundred thousand Egyptians only in northern Sinai, which is a huge piece of land. But this is the problem. Because the problem is that you allow refugees that you will not, because of demographic considerations, will give citizenship rights. And in due course, you don't want to be accused of having evacuated uh, Palestine, occupied Palestinian territory of its people. But also, Egypt took 10 years to stabilize Sinai because of armed militants from Sinai. So if within the 200,000 Palestinians who will be accepted as refugees, you have only 1,000, 1,000, uh, which is maybe a fair assumption, people from Islamic Jihad or Hamas who will continue to resist Israel or to target Israel in the way they, they claim they are and lob missiles at, at, at Israel, then actually it will be an Egyptian responsibility. That's what the Egyptian president, a military man, said. And he said he was talking with Olaf Schulz, the, the, the German chancellor. And then in, he said in 10 years, it will not be a war between Hamas and Gaza and Israel. It will be between Egypt and Israel because Israel will have to react. So there is the domestic security concern. There is the external security concern. And three, there is a concern about being part of Nakba number two. And Nakba is what the Palestinians and the Arabs call what happened to the Palestinians in 1948. They don't want a repeat of that. Mm -hmm. And how influential is, is Egypt's voice in these conversations about what happens next in calling for humanitarian pauses or as other countries are for a ceasefire? Egypt has been very determined that it will not allow Palestinians coming in, as harsh as that sounds or seems from a humanitarian perspective. They even offered and told the Israelis publicly that if you really want to move populations which might be actually a crime or violation under international law. If you want to move violation, move them to the Najaf Desert in Israel. And once you're done and finished with your cleaning operation, so to speak, you can return them back. So Egypt is determined not to accept them for security and also for economic reasons. Now, economic reasons is a double-edged sword. Egypt is facing very tough economic times. It's high. It's in high debt. It has a debt of like $164 billion. It doesn't know exactly how it's going to pay its debts. And, and next year, in 2024, it has been in discussions with IMF. There have been some leaks in, in, in Western media, I mean, in the Financial Times and, and elsewhere, that the European, European Union and probably the Americans have offered an economic package to help, Ebel, to help Egypt in exchange for accepting Palestinian refugees. Would Egypt bow under this pressure? I don't know. I don't think so until now because the security agencies, it seems to me, have stronger concerns and they don't think it's only a matter of money. And even that, this money will not be enough because those guys are never going back. 
So they will need also to be accommodated. They need to, to be provided with services, etc., etc. But some numbers have been making the rounds in the gossip, uh, uh, gossip tree, as they call it, of like Egypt was offered maybe 10 billion, maybe it asked for 20. All of these are, I think, remain at the level of, at the level of rumors. What seems to me until now that Egypt, even if economically in need, security-wise dependent uh, on countries like the U.S. and needs to maintain a good relationship with Israel, that one until now, i.e. accepting refugees in return for, for money or support, is a red line. What it is, it is offering instead is to be a conduit or a channel humanitarian supplies to go inside. Why do you want to move the Palestinians out, out of Gaza Strip? I mean, give them their basic needs. I mean, this is a blockaded area. It used to receive food, water, fuel, every, everything. It used to receive 50 trucks of fuel every day. It has received none for three weeks. So let's open a channel. But then the Israelis, because of the Israeli security measures, and maybe also on the Egyptian side because of logistics, it hasn't gone over. The Israelis cannot process over like 30 trucks a day. So yes, they say humanitarian supplies are coming in, but it's almost a trickle. It's less than it's less than maybe three percent of what's required on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. After the break, we'll talk more about how the conflict will reshape relations in the Middle East. Prospect brings rigorously fact-checked analysis, ideas, and perspectives to the big topic that the, to the world is grappling with. And today, you can buy a digital subscription for just three pounds and get three months access, then forty-nine pounds every year. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. You're speaking to us from Jordan, where there's also great humanitarian concern because there is a significant population in Jordan of Palestinians. What's the kind of public mood in Jordan and what kind of statements the government in Jordan making towards Israel as well? Of course, all of us understand there is a cultural aspect to that conflict. So all over the Arab world, there is an affinity with people who look like them, speak like them, maybe pray like them, Muslims or Christians, and they are being bombarded every day unlike them. 
So there is a sense of affinity, there is a, a strong sense of empathy to explain why Arabs are, are, are very upset at what's happening. And there is also a history, a history of having millions of Palestinians now living as refugees, including Palestinians who live in Jordan. For Jordan, as it is for Egypt, the main threat that the fight against is uh, forced displacement of people. And again, because of the nature of the current government in Israel was with an extreme right uh, wing into it, people like Smotrich, for example, the, 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 the minister, minister Smotrich and, and other ministers, those guys openly speak about what we call here the transfer, i.e., we don't want the three million Palestinians in the West Bank. Why don't they go to an Arab country? They're Arabs after all. And that for Jordan is, again, like for Egypt, it's a red line. Not only because it's against international law, it's forced displacement. How can you imagine moving three million people, uprooting them from, from, from their houses and moving them into another country, which has a delicate demographic balance? So you have a majority here or a slight majority of Jordanians of Palestinian descent, and you have East Jordanians, like in all countries which has different different ethnic groups, different backgrounds, there are certain political arrangements and what have you. This will be unacceptable, either to the East Jordanians and also to Jordan, which is a poor country. It's dependent. Jordan depends on remittances and financial aid. So imagine three million people coming. Add to that the anger, the public anger and the demonstration that we already organized here against what's happening to the Palestinian then you will have a, a full perfect storm in the hands of the Jordanian government. That's why they would like to stabilize conditions as soon as possible. That's why they sponsored this General Assembly resolution at the United Nations a couple of days ago, in which 121 countries asked for a ceasefire. They want a ceasefire. They want also the violence in the West Bank, which we don't mm -hmm. pay enough attention to stop. Over 130 Palestinians were killed largely by armed settlers. I mean, you have all these armed, you have all these Israeli, only Jewish settlements in the West Bank, about maybe 650,000 people living within the 3 million, but separately, like settlements on, on, on hilltops and Palestinian towns and villages in, in, in the valley. And there have been several attacks. This has been rising, as a matter of fact, since Netanyahu came to power uh, last year. There have been several attacks by armed settlers against Palestinians. In the last three weeks, only 130 or over Palestinians have been killed in these attacks. If we, um, if we look at the situation in, in Lebanon, we can already see kind of concrete impacts there. We've got this morning Israel saying that thousands of people have already been fleeing. Southern Lebanon has crossed border fire there continues. But in the bigger picture in Lebanon, you know, Hamas's key ally, Hezbollah, um, you say in your piece has some difficult calculations to make about how it responds to, to the impact uh, impact there as well. What's their current position and what do you expect to happen in the days to come? Until now, looking at what's happening on the ground, Hezbollah, which is backed by Iran, but it's genuinely a Lebanese organization, armed militant organization that has a representative in the parliament and 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 a huge vast social services network it has restrained itself hezbollah might have 20000 plus fighters it's well equipped 
it's it has rich coffers it has deep pockets but to the best of my to the best of my sources hamas as one of my sources told me is not willing to ride on a train that not only left the station but it's left the station without hezbollah charting its course he meant that what Hamas did on October 7 was not in consultation or prior consultation with Hezbollah. Secondly, Lebanon is going through, has gone through an economic meltdown. So the economic conditions are really horrific. And I would think Hezbollah, which is a calculating uh, organization, would easily go into war even for its ideological ally in Gaza Strip. Uh, so economically, it's it's really problematic because, thirdly, the the, the history. I mean, in two thousand six, and, and Hezbollah admitted it made a mistake when when it attacked an Israeli petrol in an area that it claims is Lebanese and taken by Israel. Then the Israeli response was, as usual, very massive, very disproportionate. 1,500 people were killed in Lebanon. The infrastructure was decimated. The whole south lay in ruins. They had to pay a huge price. But at the time, they had Syria in a calmer situation. They could send their people there. They could benefit from Syrian support. Syria now is not in that position. So there are so many reasons to think that Hezbollah wouldn't like to go to war. There is also a ton of material and military commentators and geostrategic pundits who are trying to analyze, so when will it go to war? What will happen to bring it to war? Doesn't Iran issue orders for Hezbollah to go to war? I happen to be one of those who thinks that, yes, indeed, Hezbollah has very, very strong links with Tehran, but it doesn't take orders from Tehran. And secondly, it has become economically more independent, if you like, simply because of drug trade. I mean, Lebanon is a major source for chemical drugs, uh, the, what's called the Kiptagon, which is a scourge in, in, in the Gulf and in this region, uh, but also it's a source for billions of dollars or hundreds of billions of dollars, at least, for Hezbollah. So Hezbollah is economically independent, maybe ideologically very close to Iran with Hamas and Jihad and maybe another group in Yemen and elsewhere are allies because they have similar thinking. It doesn't mean they're all working together. Mm-hmm. It's something closer to what they used to say about Al-Qaeda in Iraq, Qaeda in Algeria, Qaeda in Somalia. There are a lot of ideological affinities. And maybe they will try to relieve pressure uh, against Hamas, but they are fully aware of what could happen to them. And they have been warned clearly by the Americans who brought an aircraft carrier and other warships into the Mediterranean, making a clear and direct threat to any third parties that might go into this war. Having spoken about some of the the economically poorer countries in the region, you know, who have their own calculations to make, just to return to your point about the kind of different perspectives, some of the wealthier Middle Eastern nations and Gulf countries are coming at this from quite a different place. Qatar is being the broker over hostage talks that we've heard have kind of taken some steps forward and then some steps back again in, in recent days. And of course, we've got the, the UAE, which has come out with a quite strong position as well. Can you tell us a bit more about what the Gulf countries will be hoping to avoid and also what were they what are they aiming for in their interventions on this? I think the challenge that you and I have here is that things are changing by the day. 
I'm, I'm afraid that by the time my piece comes out in the magazine, it will be just half dated, uh, so to speak. But the United Arab Emirates, for example, yesterday made, that's October 30th, made a very strongly worded speech at the Security Council calling for a ceasefire and describing the horrific humanitarian situation in Gaza. That's the same Emirates that on October 7 has reportedly called the foreign minister called his Israeli counterpart to express support and condolences. This is the same Emirate that had a peace agreement with uh, Israel in 2020. And in the three years since then, 450,000 Israeli tourists went to Dubai. So these are two countries that have investment links. They have diplomatic links. They have security links from surveillance equipment all the way to arms. So at the beginning, their position was to stick to their solid relationship with Israel, but they came under tremendous pressure from their people. Again, the cultural affinity and even the, the human affinity with all the, 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 the horrible images coming from Gaza. So you ended up with influencers who usually only comment on drinks, restaurants, and fashion, posting pictures about Gaza and stuff like that. So I think for a change, which is unusual in the United Arab Emirates, they felt some sort of like a public mood that's, that's, that's going against them. And it's unusual because Emirates like Qatar, these are countries with very limited number of citizens and a huge number of migrant labor. And migrant labor, they can be rich doctors or American accountants, I mean, or Indian construction workers. But it's almost maybe one to nine in some cases, one citizen to nine migrant laborers. So the, the citizenship is a small, they never exercise pressure. There are no channels to exercise that pressure except for social media, which is under tremendous control. So for Emirates, it will, it's a tough situation. They are trying now to change, it seems to me, their position to put some pressure on Israel to hold the fire. Because many countries and many diplomats will tell you in private uh, settings that the Israeli military targets are unachievable because they are ill-defined. I mean, they're unclear. What does it mean to uproot Hamas? It's like debasification in, in, in Iraq. How, how do you do this? What are the indicators of success? So I think at one stage or another, they will have to tell Israel, not, not maybe in such crude language, but you have taken your revenge. Let's stop here. Or you have de decapitated or degenerated Hamas capability enough and let's stop here. Stuff like that. So Emirates is in that tough position. Qatar is in a good position because Qatar is a friend of everybody. Qatar was allowed by Israel, maybe in agreement, full agreement with Israel, to take millions of dollars in cash, in, in, in bags every month to Gaza because you have one of the poorest areas in, 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 in the world, 2.3 million people, 60% unemployment. So instead of them exploding or going uh, into starvation, I mean, you have to give them some money and you have to allow some of them to work in Israel. So Qatar had this function of taking cash and giving maybe $100 a month to each uh, employee of the Palestinian Authority in, 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 in Gaza. Uh, Qatar also has offices for the Hamas political bureau, which doesn't necessarily control the Hamas military wing, but they have that exactly as they had the Taliban office, which negotiated with the Americans when the Americans wanted to leave uh, Afghanistan. So Qatar is a very small country, very wealthy country with a strong media arm in Al Jazeera. 
and I'm not saying Al Jazeera is totally run and is a mouthpiece, but like it's again owned by the government. And everybody's their friend, from the Americans who have a military base there to the Saudis, whom they talk to every day, to the Hamas political bureau, to the Israelis with whom they are in talking terms. So Qatar will always play a political role. The Mossad, the director of the Mossad, according to, to media reports, was there yesterday or the day before, talking about possible deals to get hostages. We know that Hamas still keeps maybe 225 or more uh, Israeli hostages taking from uh, October 7 operation. And until now, I think the Qatari helped in releasing uh, a couple of them. Mm-hmm. And there is talk about another another operation like that, uh, exchange of hostages or, or hostages release. This leaves us with Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is far more difficult than the two because it has... A huge population, probably 80% of them were against normalization with Israel, which was a process started under the Abraham Accords, engineered by Jared Kushner, the son-in-law of President Trump. And supposedly Saudi Arabia was, was going to normalize relations with, with Israel in exchange for some benefits to the Palestinians that were unclear, da-da-dee-da-da-da. This now, this prospect seems to be shelved for the time being. Saudi Arabia was very, very clear from like day two or three that they don't accept the indiscriminate bombing of Palestinians in Gaza. They even started talking to the Iranians. I think Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince and the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia talked to the Iranian president a few hours before before Secretary Blinken, the, the U.S. Uh, uh, Secretary of State came to visit Riyadh to speak to him. Saudi Arabia is important uh, because it has a lot of influence over the region. Financial clout, financial clout mainly over the whole region, but also it is a source of 10% of the world daily needs of oil. Mm-hmm. And its main fear that made it think of normalization with Israel was Iran because Saudi Arabia and Iran have been at loggerheads for a long time. So it seems Saudi Arabia is opening options by trying to talk to Iran and maybe trying to persuade it to restrain itself, which has been the case until now. Let's have the, there are two levels, the rhetorical level, everybody is screaming at everybody, but then the actual level that we have seen so far that Iran has restrained itself. And if Iran starts to attack, and this is a concern for the Saudis and the Emirates, the first targets usually are Arab Gulf oil installation on the western banks of the Persian Gulf. And and that will be traumatic for Saudi Arabia, but for the whole world. I mean, according Mm -hmm. to some estimates that can wipe off $1 trillion of the global GDP, the oil prices can jump from like the 70s, $70 or $80 now to, to a barrel, to about 150 which mm-hmm. means there will be a global slowdown in the recession, etc., etc. So the Saudis have a lot of different fish and bigger fish to fry than the Qataris or the Emirates. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting what we're saying about the challenges in telling this story, because in a way things are so fast moving, but these underlying dynamics, you know, there's a deeper story that I think it's really helpful for us to unpack and that will, as we see what comes over the next weeks, will help us hopefully understand these different events that we're seeing. You've said that in the past, crises 
have led to breakthroughs, diplomatic breakthroughs over Israel and Gaza. And in the piece, you go into, yes, the Abraham Accords, the Oslo Accords as well in the 90s. But does this feel like a different situation? Is What are the odds that this crisis will ultimately lead to some kind of resolution, even if clearly with huge, huge costs along the way, mostly humanitarian ones? In, in, in previous similar uh, situations, you had an escalation of violence, a major escalation of violence, like the 1973 war between Egypt and Israel, or the major Palestinian intifada and uprising in the late 80s, that made both sides, as well as what we call the international community, usually translates in this case to the United States, be convinced that it cannot go on this way. Let's find a, a, a compromise, and compromises then work because both sides understand that, that this is not working. In the case of 1973 war, it worked. There is a peace agreement between Egypt and, and Israel that's holding for the last 45 years. In the case of Palestinians, it did not work until now because the Oslo Peace Accord that promised a solution for one of the most intractable problems in the world. There's no other place like, like Palestinian territories. There's no other country that controls maybe the almost the same number of its own population in occupied territories, but they have no rights. It's an anomaly of, of sorts. But it didn't work. That didn't work. The problem now that one, the violence level is unprecedented. On the Israeli side, this is a country that prides itself on being one of the strongest in the world definitely the strongest in this region in the Middle East, and they lost 1,400 people over, over a few hours. This is traumatic, and it's traumatic also for cultural and historical reasons. I mean, this is unprecedented for Israelis and for Israeli Jews. And we have to understand where the anger and the fear comes from. Of course, some political heads have to roll, including Netanyahu's head, but this is major. On the other hand... On the other hand, the number of people killed in Gaza is also gigantic. I mean, more children have been killed in the last three weeks, like almost, almost the same number of children killed in the last four years in all conflicts, according to Save the Children. So the depth of loss and mm -hmm. anger and traumatic shock is unprecedented. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, we don't have the international leadership or the regional leadership that's capable nor the Israeli leadership that's capable of bringing the two sides together. Of course, the Palestinian leadership is fractured, but these are, they are the weakest, they are the poorest, they are, they are not the ones who will dictate the terms, most likely and sadly. Um, so you don't have international interlocutors. I mean, in, in Washington, D.C., Europe is weak, the U.K. is irrelevant, the EU has been largely a source of funding for development to build stuff in Gaza that the Israelis come and destroy. So who will do this? Who will negotiate peace? Who will impose peace? Because at the end of the day, you would need some tough love. That's what the US did in 1979. Uh, this is what the US did for Bahrain and United Arab Emirates in the Abraham Accord. The US needs to be a guarantor of sorts. And I don't think the US is in a position to play that. And I don't think the Palestinians have enough of leadership to engage into that now. And the most important factor that the Israelis, besides uh, feeling 
very wounded and the need to revenge even after that settled the dominant political forces so far have been to the extreme right people talking openly about killing arabs and transferring palestinians to other countries so i i just don't see the silver lining there i don't see the stars are aligned to have this which is very concerning does that incredibly bleak picture mean that there would be an escalation if there's little hope of a of a peaceful resolution what happens i think at one stage or another the and hopefully before it's, it's too late it's too late in the sense of becoming a regional conflict at one stage or another the guns will stop uh, and most likely the israeli guns will stop because they are running this show now um, and when that happens then they will have to manage uh, what's left in their hands they will have gaza strip probably with two million uh, people if if we don't have major death or major displacement into sinai in egypt so they will have these two million people they will have to administer directly they will have to rule so basically in the absence of a real political process in which Either the Palestinians will have a state of their own, which seems very unlikely now. As I told you, you have 700,000 Jewish settlers living in the middle of 3 million people. It's like Swiss cheese. How can you do this? Um, so if you can't have two states, a state for each one, even an, an armed state in, in the Palestinian territories, and you can't have one state where all 7 million Palestinians and and maybe 7 or 8 million Jews would live together, which is something that's not acceptable to both sides until now, especially to the Israelis, then you just manage the situation. You just blood along. You manage it. I mean, as long as you don't have a huge escalation of violence, this has been the situation more or less for the last 70 years. They will sadly try to maintain it. My problem with that approach, which is very short-sighted, realist, blah, 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 is that it will just explode again. But politicians think of the next cycle. So if, if we can just pass the next elections, then maybe another politician will inherit that. I just don't see uh, a way out to break this deadlock. So I see more losses, more mayhem, more lives being lost until the Israelis, and then maybe with the help of a different Palestinian leadership, can reach a resolution for this. Well, Khaled, thank you so much for giving us that context on the situation that we're seeing. As we've said, it's all moving um, very fast, so we'll We'll be sure to, to check in with you and to, and to reassess some of these thoughts over the coming weeks. But thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Ellen. Thanks so much, Khaled, for joining us. And for listeners at home, grab a copy of our latest issue of Prospect magazine, which includes Khaled's essay, an accompanying piece by Avraham Berg, former leader of the Israeli Knesset, on his hopes that Israelis who favour peace will come to the fore. Also in that issue... Priyamvada Gopal on the future of the humanities, Sam Friedman on the COVID inquiry, and much more. And while you're here, why don't you subscribe to something slightly different? Prospect Lives is a monthly series of audio diary entries from our family of seven writers, including Sheila Hancock, Alice Goodman, and Mike Brearley. It is honestly a joy. Sometimes it will make you laugh, sometimes it will make you cry, but it will definitely give you a snapshot of the lives of people who live a little differently to you. Just search for Prospect Lives wherever you get your podcast or click on the link in the show notes of this episode.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.